looking today at the book of Malachi. You say, oh boy, he's preaching untithing. No, we're in Malachi chapter 2, not Malachi chapter 4. My goal and desire is to preach from all 66 books of the Bible. I actually, when I came here in July, I thought I'd like to do that in the first year. But I had Sunday nights and Wednesday nights to help, and we haven't had that, so I'm a little behind. But we've been in the parables, which are all from the Gospels, on Wednesday night. We will go back to that on the 17th, and you'll have those fill-in-the-blank pages again, and you can keep filling your book up with those. One day I'd like to teach a series on Wednesday night through maybe all the Bible cities, and I will do an explanation of the history of each city and then what happened there biblically, and that's a lot of fun. But uh, also on on Sunday nights, we're going to start back in April, and I'm going to do a series uh, considering various Bible creatures. Like the Bible says, consider the ant, we'll actually have one about the ant, and we'll take scriptural and apply principles to that. But uh, it's certainly good to be in the book of Matthew today. And it's difficult sometimes to remember, uh, you know, what you've accomplished, what you want to... In fact, I've said to someone one time, I had amnesias for as long as I can remember. My mind wandered one time and it never came back. But uh, not really, but it's, you have to stay on top of things to remember. I write down everything I've preached. So I don't want to repeat a message, and I, I don't certainly don't want to repeat a text. Sometimes I'll repeat stories and illustrations, maybe even jokes, which are already bad, so you may hear them twice. But I don't want to repeat a chapter, but I doubt I'll ever repeat Matthew chapter or Malachi chapter 2. So if you find Malachi chapter 2, stand when you find it. We'll read the first three verses, but we'll study ten verses. Malachi chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O ye priest... This commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed, and spread dung on your faces, even the dung of your solemn feast, and one shall take you away with it. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you. God bless us. We thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, as we look at the word today, that we'll have practical application to our own life. That while we're hearing the word preached, we don't think of others, we think of ourselves. We apply these principles to our lives. Lord, as we take a look in your book for a walk in this world, I pray, God, you will have me uh, just... Preach exactly the way you'd have me to preach. Guide every sentence, every thought. I know while I've studied and prepared, you often change my direction. I submit to you today to do whatever you have. Would you speak to hearts, Lord? We need you so much this hour. Be with us now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Malachi, the name, means either my messenger. It's actually a Hebrew word for the word angel, which is a messenger. And he was writing about 400 years before Christ. And he was uh, the last group of prophets that were writing at that time. He was writing at the same time that Haggai and Zechariah were writing. And these are what we call post-exile prophets. And what that means is after the children of Israel were in exile and began to return to the land, these prophets were prophesying. 
And while he's prophesying, other things are going on in the land. Ezra chapter 7 through 10 are being fulfilled. Nehemiah is there alive and his ministry is going on as well. And so he's right into the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now the key verse is chapter 3 and verse 6, the key verse of this book. And that's a verse you are well aware of. Well aware of. It says, For I am the Lord, I change not. You know, he's the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. God never changes. While I'm thankful for the new covenant, the covenant has changed, he never changes. He never changes because he's God. And the theme of this book is the word, is the theme of hypocrisy. Do you know the word hypocrite means play actor, means actor. And sometimes we're hypocrites. We act a certain way in church. And then we get out there on the road or uh, with our kids or out in the world and we act a little different. We act normal, fleshly. And so we have to be careful that we're not hypocrites. We want to be sincere as followers of Jesus Christ. And the style of writing is a question-answer style. We call it dialectic, where questions are asked. You know, over in Malachi 4, will a, or chapter 3, will a man rob God? And so there's a lot of questions. They're all rhetorical, but the questions here are still asked. And there's several things going on at this time. Chapter 1, verse 8, if you were to look at it, it'll tell you that they were offering uh, sacrifices that weren't very good. You know, offering, offering sacrifices that were the least of, of their importance. In other words, they would offer an animal that was maybe uh, skinny or had a broken leg, and that displeased God. Because the theme of giving in the New Testament and the Old Testament is the same. Your best and your first, right? First fruits and give your best to God. And, and so they were doing less than that. And then they had mixed marriages, meaning that believers were marrying ungodly, idol-worshiping people. Someone talks about mixed marriage today. We're not talking about different races. We're talking about people who didn't have faith in God. And so there's no reason for a believer to yoke up with an unbeliever in marriage. They were doing that. And, of course, they were letting the house of God lie waste as well. Now, Malachi is considered the last of the Old Testament prophets. Now, Jesus Christ has always been a prophet, priest, and king. But the last prophet in Scripture is John the Baptist, the Bible says. After John, we don't have any more prophets. We have disciples and apostles. The next prophets, besides the Lord, we already said that, the next prophets to come on the scene will be in the tribulation period where Moses and Elijah will be back prophesying. Someone said, isn't it Moses and Enoch? No, Enoch was a Gentile. Moses and Elijah were Jews. Moses represents the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. They're both described in Revelation 11, and they're both named in Malachi. Someone said, but Enoch didn't die. Doesn't he have to come back and die? No. Anyone raptured is not going to die, and Enoch was a Gentile. The two that come back are the most revered by the Jewish people, Moses and Elijah. Jews revere Jews, and that's why those two will come back. They're described, in, as we said, in Revelation chapter 11. But Malachi is the last of an era. And then we have 400 what they call silent years, where God didn't speak, it seems, between Malachi and John the Baptist. Just silent. And there's no doubt the Jews were waiting for God. But they had sinned so much, and God was fed up with their sin. And so we get to chapter 1, and we find the responsibility of the priest. It says, and now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. Now, if you ever read Psalms like Psalm 119, 
any of the Psalms, but Psalm 119, you have eight different words there referring to the Bible, the word judgments and statutes. But the word commandment here is a word that means something unchanging. And so he says to the priest, here is an unchanging command for you. Now look at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, because this is going to surprise you a little bit. Because we're reading a text that's talking about the priest of the temple, and we want to make it practical and apply it to today. So Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6, you may already know this, but it's important for us to preach this. We call this the priesthood of the believer. Romans chapter 1 verse 6 says that God hath made us kings and what? Priest. Romans chapter 5. Romans. I said Revelation. Did I say Romans the first time? We're in Revelation chapter 1. I apologize. The word Revelation is the word apocalypse. To me, it means unveiling. That's the Greek word. And so you're familiar with that term. But in chapter 1, we already read that. Now Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. I told you my mind wanders sometimes. It doesn't come back. Revelation 5.10 says, same thing. Referring to God, I'm picking up from the previous verses, it says, and has made us unto our God kings, and what? Priest. Goes on to say, and we shall reign on the earth. We're not reigning yet, but when the millennial comes, guess what? If we're the least in this life, and if we were faithful in this life, we will rule and what? Reign with him. But I read the verse to point out that we are priests. So when we take this across time and culture and make an application to today, we have to recognize we are also priests in God. How did that happen, Brother Dan? Well, the Jew couldn't go into the most holy place. Only the high priest could go in. And he only went in once a year to make atonement for the sin. The priest could go into the outer. We have, we have the outer court where everyone could go. Gentiles were allowed in certain parts of the temple. Then we had the holy place where the priests could go, and the most holy where the high priest could go. Well, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that, that curtain, nine inches thick, was rent all the way. What, what does that speak of? It speaks of our access to God. We can now go boldly into the presence of God because Jesus Christ rent that veil. He tore down that middle wall of partition that was between us. So that makes us priests. We can go and we can, we can speak to God directly. We don't have to go to the most holy place. The most holy place is right here. He's here. He's here. He lives in my heart. And so I, I can talk to him and I can do what a priest does. I can intercede for other people. Did you know that? Isn't that great? And you can intercede for other people. And you can reconcile people to God. We're all given the ministry of reconciliation. Did you know it's your calling as a priest of God to reconcile people to God? What does that mean? It means to be a witness, to tell people about Jesus, that he wants the enmity, the, the hostility between that sinner and God to end, and he's made a way for that to happen. We said last week he is the way. He made it happen. And so you can go into the presence of God. And here it says, Oh, priest, verse 1, we're back in our text. This commandment is for you. Now, if you drop down to verse 6, the priest had to do four things back then. It says in verse 6, they had to speak the truth. 
They had to speak righteously. They had to walk in equity. They had without partiality. In other words, they couldn't be respecter of persons. And finally, it says in verse 6, they turned many from iniquity. I like James 5.20. He which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save his soul. And so we have, we have to, we have to do that. We have to help turn people from iniquity and turn them to Jesus. Are you exercising your calling as a priest? Are you a witness at work? Are you a witness in the community? Do you speak truth and righteousness? That's what the priest was called to do. Now, verse 2, we see that if the priest doesn't do what he's supposed to do, there'll be a a judgment upon him. First, the Bible says in verse 2, he'll curse our blessings. In verse 3, he'll corrupt our seed. He'll curse our blessings and corrupt our seed. Look at verse 2. If you will not hear, the word here, there, comes from a Hebrew word, Shema. And you don't need to know that word. Our, my magazine out there, you see, has it's called the Shema Shofar. The word Shema is translated three ways in your Old Testament. Hear, listen, and guess what? Obey. In other words, when God speaks, He expects obedience. Why, if, if your boss said to you, listen, the restroom's dirty. You, you understand fully what he's saying. Get in there and clean the restroom. And that Hebrew word is found hundreds of times in the Bible. Hear, listen, obey. Listen up, God says. I'm going to curse you if you don't, if you don't listen, if you don't hear what I say, if you don't obey me, I'm going to curse you. Look at the verse in verse two. And then it goes on to say, and uh, verse two, and if you will not lay it to heart, we would say today, if you don't take it to heart. You know what was happening in this day? The priest was going through the motions. They were going, doing their job. It was just a job to them. They'd lost their passion. They lost their direction. They didn't realize what they were supposed to do. The nation of Israel is in sin. I mean, they had been in sin so much, and now the priest had just become worthless, basically. Like a lot of Christians today. I don't know of any here, but I'm sure we may have wolves amongst the sheep, the Bible says. We may have tares amongst the wheat. But we certainly have hypocrites amongst us. We don't know necessarily who they are, but we're all capable of doing that. When we don't live right during the week, we're hypocrites because we're professing that we're followers of Christ. That's what a Christian means. And we're not living right. And so they didn't take it to heart. They didn't take it serious that they were priests. We need to understand it's serious and we are priests today. We've been given this calling. And so he says, lay it not to heart and to give glory unto my name. We have to also give glory to God. And it says, give glory to my name, saith the Lord of hosts. That word Lord, all capital letters, that's not Adonai, that's not Master, that's Yahweh. The I am of the Old Testament. And who is that in the New Testament? Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Who is that? Jesus. So the Lord of hosts. And this means Lord of armies. Uh, uh, Lord of hosts, that that title for our Lord is used uh, 250 times in the Old Testament. 24 times in this book and four times in our verses. It means Lord of the armies. Lord of the armies. We have to obey the Lord of the armies or we'll be cursed. He said, oh, I'll curse you. 
Verse 2, I'll curse your blessings. Children were seen as a blessing, a heritage from God. They will be cursed. It goes on to say, I'll corrupt your seed. We'll talk about that in a minute, but the word curse means to render powerless. To bind someone, to resist someone. I don't want God resisting me. I don't want God binding me and taking my power away. My power comes from on high, and if he wants to take it away, he can. The Lord will never leave me nor forsake me, but the Lord can render me powerless. You know, when you're in sin, God doesn't hear your prayer. Did you know that? Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, God's hand is not short that he cannot hear. goes on to say, but your sins have separated you from God, and he will not hear you. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayer. So when you go to the Lord and you pray, if you haven't confessed your sin, He doesn't hear you. And you're powerless. And as priests, we need His power in our lives. Amen? We need that power from on high. And Jesus is a Lord of hosts. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of the armies, and He's Lord of all. I've had people talk about, and I've said the same thing, it's important for us to make the Lord Lord of our life. And that sounds like a good thing to say. Really, we could say that we need to submit to Him and yield to Him and obey Him because He is Lord. And I have news for you. He's Lord of all, whether you make Him Lord or not. (laughs) He's Lord of everything. And when we get that and we understand that, we'll be able to accept the fact that he intervenes in our lives sometimes and kind of mixes things up and shakes things up. He's Lord of all. He's Lord of lords and he's King of kings. He's in control of your life, your future, your finances, whether you accept it or realize it or not. He's Lord. Aren't you thankful he's Lord? You know, no man can serve two masters. You need to serve him. If you're serving anything else or anyone else, you're going to be out of fellowship with God. So he'll, he says he'll curse them. It says he'll, verse three, he'll corrupt their seed. And look at verse three. This is disgusting. We read it and I know you had to think, is this for real? You'll have poop on your faces. That's, that's the way we would say it. We don't use the word dung. Um, there's other terms I could use that wouldn't be very nice. But he said you'll have poop, human feces on your face. And that'll be your feast too. That's your, your solemn feast, these times that we'd have these big feasts to recognize God. God wouldn't honor that at all. He said your feast will be full of poop. And then he says you'll be carried away like poop. What a disgusting verse, but yet that's God saying that. That's God's word. Do you believe that? That seems to be gross, but that's what he says. I'll corrupt your seed. Now, when Jesus came, remember, here it says corrupting their seed, referring to future generations. And we know that when Jesus came in John John chapter uh, 9, I believe it was, the Pharisees came and said, was this man born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus said, neither, but that I can be glorified. Why would they ask that? Because the Pharisees knew the law. And in the law, Exodus says, sin will pass to the fourth generation. Would that not be scary that when you live a life of sin, it's going to affect four generations? Not just your kids, 
your grandkids, but your great-grandkids and your great-grandkids are affected by what you do. Now, we're, done, we're no longer under the curse of the law. Understand that, right? We're not, aren't you thankful for the new covenant? I'm glad I'm not under the law. But that was what is said in Exodus. And it goes on to say the children of Moab couldn't enter the temple till the 10th generation. So think of that. God was angry he wouldn't let them come to the temple for 10 generations. I mean, you talk about a serious penalty. But let me say this. While we're not under that curse, and while we're thankful we're not under those curses, guess what the Bible does teach? It does teach that a, as a mother is, so is a daughter. It does teach that the way you live your life will affect your children. I'll guarantee every one of you, including me, if we could raise our hand and say we'd like to have done something different in our youth, for the sake of the next generation, we'd do it. Let me tell you something. The way you've lived your life has affected your children and your grandchildren. Sometimes you say, I don't know what I did wrong, but I got a child or a grandchild or a great-grandchild that's messed up. And I can't explain all that, but I do know we reap what we sow. And I do know that when I drive a car, I teach my children how to act when somebody pulls in front of you, in front of me. I don't give them the finger, but I know there's been times my kids have said, Dad, you're tailgating. Or, and I use myself as an example, but all you can relate to that. And it's not just in how we drive our car. It's how we act at home. It's how we talk to one another. It's how we act at work. And we wonder why our kids have problems. Let me tell you something. We have to set an example for the next generation. And we do, we do have a big impact on the generations that come after us. I want my grandchildren to say, when I leave this world, Papa loved God. And I want to be like Papa. I hope they're not like me because I know me. You know, I know, I know what's in there. But I hope that in their presence, I live the life I should live. And he says, while he will curse them, he'll corrupt their seed. The good thing is, however, in verses 4 to 7, he'll keep his covenant. Look at it says, And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Ye shall know. Isn't that great to know? 1 John 5, 13, These things have been written unto you that you may know, that you have eternal life. You know, I have some assurances in my life. So he says, I've written these things that ye shall know. And when times are difficult, our new covenant, God will keep it. Amen? Now, covenants are interesting because you have unconditional covenants and you have conditional covenants. The law was, was a conditional covenant. If you do this, I'll bless you. If not, I'll curse you. But the covenant of Abraham was unconditional. God was going to keep his covenant no matter what. You see, when Abraham was there, God put him into a deep sleep. And when he, when he separated that animal, God walked through that between those two parts of that animal, through that blood alone. That was a custom of the day. When they made an agreement and they had a covenant, they would take an animal, sacrifice, they'd separate that animal, and both parties would walk through together. But when it came to Abraham, God walked through alone. We came to the new covenant, which is unconditional. Guess what? Jesus Christ went to the cross alone. And he became the lamb. And he shed his blood for the sin of the world. So our covenant is also unconditional. In other words, just like Abraham's seed would get the land, 
That hasn't changed. The land is theirs. And one day they'll be there and they'll have all that land and Jesus Christ will rule. But our covenant is also unconditional. Even though I make mistakes, I'm still a child of God. He's given me eternal life. That's the new covenant. No matter what happens. I've shared so many stories with you, but I remember living in Panama and all the dangers we went through. We were moving one time into a double-wide trailer, and I had to renovate the trailer. You know trailer's in bad shape, you have to renovate a trailer. And I'd tear all the floors up, and I tore the floor up, and there's a viper just waiting there, curled up. One killed my dog. We had snakes, I had to beat him to death with a stick. And I mean, we had constant challenges like that. During the war of just cause, we came to a checkpoint. We didn't live on the base, so we were one of the few Americans that were riding around during the time we had to live, you know, and go get food. And so, and they, they pointed AK-47s at our face. I don't know how many children I have. I can't remember the date, but I could figure that out with a calendar. But my kid or kids were in the back. And these rifles are pointed to us, and I thought, you know, they've killed quite a few. Nobody's around. They could kill us. But I, I just had a peace. God called me here. God, God has a plan for my life. And I just believe that God would keep His Word. Now, if God took me home, that's part of His plan. I've been happy to be in the presence of the Lord. But I wasn't fearful at that time. I said, I, I realize God is in control. And He's going to keep the covenant. And if His, His plan is for me to start a church and do all this, I'd already started one, but it's going to, it's going to happen. And uh, we had moved out into our trailer, and just, just I think, a week or three or four days after we moved out, uh, a rocket blew up our dining room. We weren't there. My book, my office, which was still in the same spot, bullets had riddled my bookshelves. The glass, glass was all shot out. I have today one of the bookshelves I shipped back, and a bullet had knocked a chip off the top of the ricocheted, and I thought I wasn't there either. You know where I was? I don't remember, but I remember this. I was in the hands of God. See, God's sovereign. And 40 hurricanes, an earthquake, and a flood where a car was carried downstream. We had to crawl out the window, get our kids out of the seat, uh, the, what do you call them, car seats. God was there. God was there. He never fails. I think about covenant and treaty are different, but you know, America made all these treaties with the Native Americans and cheated them on every one. <laughs> we, we put them on reservations. My son works in the reservation. It is, I have reservations about it. It's so destitute when you go out there. It's sad to see this, the plains and the, the dry and the, and these people and the way they live. And it's so sad. And I think God keeps his word with me. He takes care of me. Oh, I want them to be saved. And I have to have compassion for those people. If we have to pay reparations to the Native Americans, we'll never stop paying them because we owe them hundreds of thousands we killed, you know. Think of that. And my son has a compassion for these people. And I'm like, wow, my son's got a special heart for these people. Sometimes I'm a jerk. I drive to work, and, and if I don't get real early, I'm an early bird, so I... I don't like worms, by the way, but I'm an early bird. But I'm, I'm driving to work, and quite often, if I'm not there early, I get behind a school bus. That's like the little test of patience for the morning. 
And there's always one elderly lady that lives in these apartments. It's, it's on uh, Navajo Drive. And she comes down the stairs with her little ones, probably 70, I think. And, uh, and I think, boy, she looks old. And then I look in the mirror and I look similar. But she's coming down the stairs. And sometimes I'm like, lady, why don't you come down the stairs and be there when the bus gets there? I don't say it to her. I talk to myself. Most lunatics do. And I talk to myself and I say that. And recently I was driving down the road and the bus hadn't come and there's that lady. Boy, the Lord got a hold of my heart. Said, you know that lady with those little kids. Isn't it obvious to you? And he didn't say this, but I felt like an impatient, non-compassionate jerk. Here's a lady that has those little kids, three and five or something, or five and seven, I don't know. Why do you suppose she has those? And I start to think, mom and dad aren't there. Where are mom and dad? Here's an older lady that has to get those kids up every morning. She may not know the Lord, and she has to come down those stairs and get those kids on that bus, and I could hardly keep my composure as I drove to work that last mile. I said, I haven't had any compassion for that lady. And the Lord just smote my heart. And I started to pray for every day and say, God, help that lady. And I want to give her the gospel. I decided the other day, next time she's out there and the bus is not there, I'm getting out with a track. And then the guy behind me can honk at me. I've never honked. But I'm going to give her a track because that lady... Just what she has to go through. She's raising those kids you know she is. She's in a little apartment that the parents don't live there, I'm sure. You know what, folks? We have to be like Jesus. And if we're going to be priests, we have to reconcile people. We have to care. Now we look here at verse 8. Drop down to verse 8. Verse 5 talked about Aaron and his descendants, Phineas, and how they were good priests and they feared God. But verse 8, we get to verse 8. He's talking to the priest. He's saying, here's what's going to happen. Then what does he say to the priest? But ye are departed from the way. And he goes on to say in verse 8, you've caused many to stumble and you corrupted the covenant. So the priests were worthless. They departed from the way. Last week we talked about the way. Who is the way? Jesus said, I am the way. And so many passages, we think of Psalm 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. And we think of uh, Psalm 1, 1, blesses a man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way with sinners. And I'm using that word to illustrate something obviously. But folks, the priest departed from the way, and there's only one way. Their job was to lift up Yahweh. Their job was to point people to the coming Messiah. They didn't know His name. We know it to be Jesus. But their job was to point people to God. And they lost their way. And then second, notice they caused many to stumble. Turn to Romans 14. Romans 14. Let your fingers do the walk. And it's not that hard. Romans 14, verses 13 and 21. Let me say this to you. It's serious sin to cause someone to stumble. To offend somebody. Now, if you're one of these people that is always offended, then you need to grow up. Because you know what the Bible says? Blessed are those that love the word and 
or the law, it says the word, and nothing shall offend them. A strong Christian is always, well, poor me, I got offended. Everybody owes me an apology. If you always need an apology, you need to grow up and be mature in Christ. A mature Christian doesn't always have to have someone come to them and apologize. And a mature Christian is quick, however, on the other hand, the other side of the coin, is quick to say they're sorry. That's maturity in Christ. If you can say you're sorry, that shows you're mature. I made a lot of mistakes as a father. I've had to apologize to my kids. And one of my sons said, Dad, the one thing I remember is not the times you spanked us in anger or you did this or that, but I remember you'd come and say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I've made a lot of mistakes, and I haven't always probably apologized like I should in all situations in life. But just me saying I'm sorry to my kids has had a good effect on them. A mature Christian says he's sorry. A mature Christian doesn't have to hear someone else say it. See, there's two sides to that, aren't there? But anyway, uh, we find, go back here to Romans 14. I was going to say something else. I've got to say it now. Sorry. If I decide to go out and get drunk, you say, Brother Dan, what are you thinking about? I'm not thinking about going out and getting drunk. I don't even like NyQuil, okay? Uh, if I decide to do that, and I do that in the presence of some of our young people, maybe Eli sees me or Rachel sees me or, or someone uh, that's just come to Christ or maybe a very weak Christian, that's a serious sin. Did you know that? It would be better for me to fall and make mistakes in front of our older men. You see, Jim McCormick, he saw me get drunk. He wouldn't quit on God. He's been with God all these years, and he's not going to stop living for God. He's mature. It won't harm him like it will. A young... Now, he'll be disappointed in me, and as my elder, I hope he'd come and say, Brother Dan, I'm really disappointed in you. You need to resign, you know. I hope he would do that. But he's not the one I worry about. Who do I have to worry about? The weaker one. Don't offend children, Jesus. Don't, don't, don't harm children. If you get mad and you say, well, it was just a kid that's watched me, you don't realize how much damage you could have caused. When I was a kid, I remember people who did certain things. When I grew up, I remember those people in a bad light. And I always respected the man of God or the mature person who would, would do the right thing in the presence of others. Look at Romans 14, 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or occasion to fall in his brother's way. Look at verse 21. It is neither, neither, it is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything where thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. It's a serious matter. It was a serious matter in the Old Testament. It's a serious matter in Romans. We can't harm other people by living any way we want to. People always say, yeah, it's my life. The world says, it's my body. If I want to kill a baby, I can kill a baby. It's my body. No, it's not. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. And as believers, we are bought with a price. We belong to God. We've, we've submitted our lives to Him, and we're supposed to be a living sacrifice. So we have to remember how important it is to remember that we belong to God and we live for others. We don't just live for ourselves. None of you are an island. None of you have a right to just go out and do what you want. God will not allow that. He'll spank you. Look here at Jeremiah chapter 31. The last phrase here says they have corrupted the covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31. We're about to close. Just bear with me for a couple of minutes here. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, chapter 31. It says they corrupted the covenant back in verse 8. But they departed from away. They caused many to stumble. They corrected the covenant. Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 32. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I'll put my law on their inward parts. I'll write it on their hearts. God says the new covenant is going to be different than the one I made with them before. The new covenant will be unconditional. It won't depend on us. Aren't you glad? It totally depends on him. It's not by my righteousness and my works. It's what Jesus did on Calvary that keeps the covenant. I'm so glad of that. You know, the Bible says God divorced Israel. Hebrews says this, if that first covenant had been faultless, there had been no need for a second. What does that mean, Brother Dan? What was wrong with a covenant? That's God's covenant. How could you say it had a fault? I didn't say it. Paul did in Hebrews. But the fact is the Bible says that first covenant had a fault. You know what the fault was? It was that the covenant was made with us and we didn't keep our part. Man failed. So the new covenant didn't include us. Jesus Christ shed His blood and that sacrifice was once for all, and thank God it was for me. We go back and we close now. In verse 9, in verse 10, verse 9 says, Therefore I have also made you contemptible and base before all the people. Back in our text, verse 9, now think about this. God says He makes Israel contemptible. That word is translated in your Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, 40 times despised. He says, you Jews are despised amongst all the people. And he says, and their base, that's also translated low. Jewish people are looked down upon by everyone right now, even today. They're despised by everyone. Why is that? Two reasons. Number one, they disobeyed God and God judged them that way. Sometimes God will judge Israel and then he'll punish those that have harmed Israel. So we know those who have mistreated Israel will be dealt with someday. But God does make them base and contemptible. Name one people group in the world that is judged and hated by everyone, just about. Who is it? The Jews. Read your history. That's one reason, because they displease the Lord. The second reason is because Satan hates Israel. Why does Satan hate Israel and cause Everybody else to hate Israel. I mean, the Russians killed millions. The Germans killed millions. The Turks hate them. The Ottoman Turks try to wipe them out. We know all their enemies, the Iranians, hate them. And sometimes we're like, why? Israel has a little piece of land, 40 miles long and 100 miles long and 40 miles wide, and everybody wants that little piece of land. They hate the Jews for two reasons. Number one, the Jews disobeyed God. But second of all, Satan knows the Messiah will come from Israel. He did and he will again. And they hate Jesus. Marvel not that they hate the Jews or the Christians because they hated Jesus. Now, God's going to save Israel one day, praise God. But verse 9, he says, I'll make you contemptible. And then finally, we close in verse 6. He says, ask some rhetorical questions. Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Why do we do what we do? Why don't we treat people right, love people? Why don't we have compassion for people? Why do we lead as priests 
uh, partially in favor of one over another. We're guilty of that James says not to be partial in, in our lives. You know, if we mentioned a homeless man a while back, maybe last week or before, no matter who comes into this church, they're as important to God as every one of us. The preacher's not any more important. Nope, neither are you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your position is. You ever been around somebody that's so arrogant? All they talk about is how much money they have. And you want to just say, I don't care how much money you have, Buster. If you're so impressed with yourself, give me some of it, you know. But, but I mean, they're just so arrogant. The priest had become like that. They were affluent, meaning they had some money. And they did not do what they were supposed to do. They were not partial or impartial. They were partial in their judging. People had money. They'd make decisions that favored them. Sounds like 2021 in America. Folks, we need to examine our lives as priests. Be compassionate. Be caring. Look for people who need Jesus and reconcile them to God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, God. We thank you for your word. And Lord, when you lead me to preach a passage from a book like Malachi, I wonder how can this apply and be practical, and yet your Holy Spirit makes it so. Thank you for your word, inspired and errant and fallible. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to your word, to be compassionate, to not show partiality, to, to be, Lord, uh, people who intercede for others and who be people who reconcile sinners to your, to you, Father, in Jesus' name. We pray these things in Jesus' name.